praise the Lord that we can worship him together and say my worth is not in what I own, but my worth is in him, in him alone. And so uh, as we gather our thoughts again, you know, like just to be honest with you, it, it, it is it is quite distracting when when a church shuts off for you. You know, when when you're speaking live in front of people, uh, they might shut down physically, but but church doesn't shut off. And so uh, that's what's happened to me this morning. So let's let's pray that the Lord would gather our thoughts, uh, help us from uh, distraction that we may have right now. Again, I just encourage you, let us know that you're here. Uh, YouTubers that are watching in, it would be great to hear from you as well. And and what I want you to do right now is just open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 16. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that the Lord would help us, despite all these distractions of, of this, the screens turning off and the live stream being interrupted and all of that. I'd like us just to pray that the Lord would, would move even still in a mighty, mighty way. That the Lord would move even still to, to draw people in, um, friends and family and yourselves as we engage with one another and have time of reflection even at the end. So, so we're going to pray that the Lord would just help us even at this time. So let's, let's pray before we turn to his word. Lord, you know our hearts, you know our minds, and you know the distracting nature that this is when, when things shut down on us. But Lord, we trust you. We trust you that you had a good and perfect plan for this this morning and for the other mornings that this has happened. And we pray, trusting you, that you will still speak to us loudly and clearly through your word this morning. And so, Lord, we wait on you, the good and gracious God and King, to speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray for each and every family and child watching in that the reality of the gospel might hit our hearts and, and tune our minds into all that you are doing in our lives. In your precious name. Amen. Uh, during the week, I was I was reading this uh, story about uh, Richard Branson's company, uh, Virgin, and the company are competing with all other companies to create the fastest transportation they can create. And so what they've created is what is called the Virgin um, Hyperloop. And this Virgin Hyperloop was tested during the week with, with real human passengers. And it is said that this transportation, it's kind of like an underground um, tube uh, system in which you get in and they, they, they believe that they can reach speeds of up to a thousand kilometers per hour, which means essentially that if this Hyperloop type of technology and type of transportation was to get into Ireland, for example, you could travel the length of, in the country of the country in less than half an hour. It is incredible speed and incredible technology that we have in this world that you can just hyperloop your way uh, through um, a country and get to the other side in less than 30 minutes. And I think that tells us something as human beings. It tells us something about ourselves. And what it tells us about ourselves is we don't want to go through the difficult journey. We don't want to go through the hard journeys in life. We just want to get there really, really fast. And sometimes that can happen to us as Christians as we're going through our trials and, and as we're going through our difficulties, all we want to do is kind of hyperloop our way through the trial, hyperloop our way through the difficulty. And we realize that we just can't do that, can we? 
Life throws us curveballs. Life throws us difficulties and difficult situations that we don't know how to handle. And we know, we know as people, we know as Christians, we can't just hyperloop our way through it. We have to live in it and we have to live through it. The question is, when trials do come, how are we going to live through it? What way should we live through it? And, and, and what I think we're going to discover here this morning is that we as Christians should be people who live in hope. We as Christians should be people who live in hope. And that is that is Peter's point here in, in chapter 1, verse 13. Let me just read to you a few verses at the time and go through it this way. Chapter 1, verse 13 says this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you, do you hear that command there? Set your hope fully. That's what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to live in hope. Now, when I say that phrase, live in hope, usually we think that phrase is a phrase that that doesn't give us certainty. You've heard the catchphrase, oh, we, we live in hope. That means you're living, hoping that something might happen, but you're not sure that it will. And that is the difference, really, isn't it, between worldly hope and biblical hope. That is the big difference between those two. And we, we talked about this um, in relation to verse three of chapter one, the difference between what we called dead hope and living hope. As Christians, we are not to have dead hope. Dead hope is the type of hope that says, oh, we just live in hope. We're wishing, we're wanting something to happen, but we don't know that it will happen. It's like when we say in Ireland, oh, oh, I hope it won't rain tomorrow. And we know that that's dead hope. We're not sure that that's going to happen. Even if the weather forecast has told us that it won't rain, we still have this dead hope, you know, wishing that it won't rain. That's dead hope. But for Christians and the biblical New Testament word hope is not dead hope. It is living hope. It is assured. It is certain. We, we place our hope and base our hope on everything God has done in the past. We can trust him and hope in him with certainty for the future. That is biblical hope. So when he gives this command, set your hope fully, he's not saying dead hope. He is talking about living hope. And this hope that we have, it is a hope. That has a sure foundation. It is a hope that is based upon a sure foundation. And we have heard about that foundation. How do we know that we have heard about that foundation? Because of what he says in verse 13. He begins with the word therefore. Do you see that word? Therefore. And, and if you've been listening to me for, for the past few months, you will know what we mean by the word therefore. That tells us something about Peter's writing. That Peter is coming to a conclusion on the basis of everything that he said. This is the biblical pattern. This therefore. 
He is telling, he's told us who we are, and therefore he is going to tell us what we're to do. So what Peter is doing is he is following Paul's pattern that we saw in Colossians. Peter is following his own pattern, this, this tell us who we are and tell us what to do. Peter is following the New Testament pattern. And what we're going to hear is this is actually the Old Testament pattern as well. We know who we are, and then we are told what to do. This is the foundation. We have heard this foundation in verses 3 to 12. In verses 3 to 12, he tells us all about who we are before he gets to the therefore in verse 13. And verses 3 to 12 in the Greek text, not in our English text, but in the Greek text, verses 3 to 12 is just one long sentence, which means... I spent something like four weeks going through one long sentence. And then we come to the therefore. And this one long sentence can be summarized like this. This is your foundation, the foundation for your hope. Here is how I can summarize it for you. You have been chosen by God. And though you are strangers in this world, you have been born again to a living hope. And even though you experienced trials in this world, you know that your trials have a purpose. And so you can be filled with an inexpressible joy because you see a a salvation that the prophets and the angels long to see. That's the foundation for everything that we've been going through. That's my summary for everything that we've gone through these last few weeks. And then he says to us, therefore, live in hope. Because you have all this thing, because you have the salvation that the prophets long to see and the salvation that the angels long to see, because you have all that, therefore, set your hope fully. And so then we have got to ask ourselves, what does this hope look like? What does this hope look like? Because here's the pattern. Um, Paul, Peter has set the whole foundation, verses 3 to 12. And then the very first command in the entire letter is this, set your hope. That is what we are to do. We are to set our hope. Now, what does that look like? Hope is a wholehearted The hope that we are to have looks like a wholehearted hope. Do you you hear the words? Set your hope fully. Not half-heartedly, but set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed. Christians are to live a life that is all in. As we were looking at at the Bible study on Friday night, we were looking at the fact that, that as Christians, we need to be all in. There was, there was the, the, there, you are either the chaff or the wheat. You are either thrown into the fire or into the farm. You either go the narrow road or the wide road. Which road are you going to go as a Christian? We are to be all in. 
We are to set our hope fully, not partially. It is this all-in hope that we are to have. It is a wholehearted hope. But what is this hope in? What is this hope that we are to set our hope in? We learn then that this hope that we have is not only a wholehearted hope, but this hope that we have is a grace-based hope. Do you see what he says there at the end of verse 13? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, your mind should be working like this. Grace that will come to me. What on earth does that mean? The grace that will come to me. Because have we not already experienced grace upon grace? Hasn't it already happened? What then does it mean that grace will come to me? And in this, we get the most glorious picture of what grace is and of what grace looks like. Some of the language I will use here, I'll borrow from John Piper and I'll use some of my own language in it as well. We have a grace that is full. Our grace looks like this. We have experienced what I'm going to call past grace. We have experienced past grace. And you see that in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 when it says this, by grace you have been saved. We as Christians, we experience a grace that is a past grace. We still experience now, of course, but it was affected for us in the past. You have been saved by grace. Can we say glory to God and hallelujah that by grace we have been saved? It is not by works. It is not by my own doing. It is all of grace, his past grace. And we praise God for that past grace. But if your view of grace ends there, you haven't got a full view of what grace really looks like. Because not only do we experience past grace, but we experience sustaining grace. Grace that helps us through life's issues and troubles and difficulties. We experience a grace that just keeps on giving. Grace isn't just the gift that has given. Grace is the gift that just keeps on giving. And so Paul, when he was going through hardships and difficulties in his life and and hardships in his ministry, when he was going through that, he said this about the grace that was sustaining him. Listen to what he said. In 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. But the grace of God that is with me. What Paul is saying there is in his ministry, he worked really hard. And yet he realizes it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me, sustaining me and keeping me. Which means that grace is the gift that just keeps on giving. And so when you sing the song, Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You can sing it like that, but you can also sing it like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that sustained a wretch like me. It sustains us. It keeps us through life's difficulty. But 
Grace does not end there. Grace is the gift that keeps on giving. Not only do we have past grace, not only do we have sustaining grace, but this passage tells us that we look forward to a future grace. Listen to what it says. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That means. That means you might think that when you're singing Amazing Grace, oh, I understand grace. It's the free and undeserved gift. I understand it. I've got it. Listen, you have not even reached the foothill of grace. We will experience a grace that we have never seen before when Jesus Christ is revealed again. We will spend all of eternity with this sense as we worship our Savior. We are going to spend all of eternity with this sense. I do not deserve what I'm getting. This is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And it will be everlasting. And this, my friends, is what we are to set our hope on. Often we think we have contributed to our salvation. No, it is all of grace. And we will spend all of eternity realizing that our salvation was all of his glorious grace. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But he gave it to us and we will sing hallelujah to him. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about this concept that in the ages to come, He will reveal to us the immeasurable riches of his grace. We will be watching his grace for eternity. That, my friends, is what we are to set our hope on. Not past grace, not sustaining grace, but future grace that is coming our way. And I cannot wait to experience more of it. Because when you have tasted it, don't you just want more? Well, my friends, there is more to come. So set your hope in that grace that is to come. So if we're called, if the first commandment in 1 Peter is set your hope, if that is the first commandment for us that we are to remember, then we need to ask, well, how do I do that commandment? And the how of how we do that commandment is actually given to us before the commandment at the very start of the verse, verse 13. Preparing your hearts for action and being sober minded. This is how we do it. Those two ing words. If you want to know how am I going to set my hope in this grace that is in the future, how am I going to do it? You do it by preparing your mind and by being sober minded. So the first way we are to set our hope now in the future grace that is to come is by preparing our mind for action. And I don't know if you've realized this nowadays, but I don't think or feel that our minds are very ready for action nowadays. Our minds aren't minds that I would say are very active minds. Why? Because when you want an answer for something, where do you go? 
When you want an answer for something, where is it that you go? You go to Google. Instead of going to our brain to find an answer, we go to Google to find the answer. And we shut off our minds. And I've thought about this recently in relation to my children. I am, I am teaching my children, here is how you get answers in life. You go to Google to get your answers. And so we, we shut off our mind. And then I was thinking the other day about phone numbers. This is how my mind works. I was just randomly thinking about phone numbers. And I asked myself, well, how many numbers, how many phone numbers do I actually know? Like off the top of my head. Very, very few. There's one number that I know really well, and that is Luana's number. But outside of that, I don't remember any numbers anymore. Do you know why? My phone does it for me. My mind is not ready for action at all. I rely upon devices and things to get my mind ready for action. Our minds aren't ready for action like they used to be. Our minds are more ready for distraction than they are for action because we always have these devices in our head and, and they're, they're, we're flicking and we're changing from things. That is why during these sermons you are going to battle for attention. Do you know why? Because your mind is used to flicking and changing from things. Even as we've started out the sermon, you've probably flicked and changed to a few different things on your phone or whatever you have done. It's very hard for us to keep our minds focused on what is in front of us. That's why I've encouraged us to take notes during the sermon, because we all know that our minds aren't ready for action. And in fact, if you go back to the uh, original phrase that this verse says, it's, it's really this, this weird phrase that would be like this. Gird up the loins of your mind for action. Gird up your loins for action. Now, that sounds like an awful phrase. I know. Gird up your loins. What, what, what does that mean? Well, basically, back in the day, uh, the men and the women, they would wear long flowing garments. But when you're wearing long flowing garments and you want to run, it's very hard to run. So what do you do? You, you, you gird up your loins. You, you grab the long flowing garment and you, you try it and you tuck it in and so that you can run. That's how you get ready for action. You gird up the loins and you get ready to run. That's what we need to do, brothers and sisters. We need to discipline our minds. Has your mind ever gone all over the place? Our minds are used to going all over the place. No, well, how we are going to set our hope and future grace is by disciplining our minds, our minds, to hear what is before us in the Lord Jesus. We need to discipline our minds. How do we do this? By being sober-minded. How do we get ready our minds for action so that we can set our hope? How do we do that? We be sober-minded. At Christmas, do you know what's going to happen in the next few months? There's going to be um, more Garda checks on the road. And do you know why? Because at Christmas, usually, what do people do? People usually drink at this time. And when they drink, what are they going to be? They're not going to be sober-minded. They're going to be drunk. And the reason guards check people as to whether they have drank too much is because when you drink too much, you are going to go all over the place on the road. You're not going to be sober minded. 
And so what Peter is encouraging us to do as believers here is, is watch our minds. Guard your minds from binge drinking on the world. Because if you binge drink on the world, when you're driving the road of life, you are going to crash. And so we need to make sure that we keep our minds sober and not binge drink on the things of this world. So what might that mean for us? Well, I think that means two things for us. Firstly, I think it means we, we, we take care not to fill our minds with rubbish. There are things that are constantly trying to grab the attention of our minds. I was watching a thing on Netflix, um, a social dilemma, I think the, the thing was called. And it was just this idea that your devices right now are, are vying for your attention and trying to consume your mind. And so our mind is being flooded with all of this rubbish. Even the world is realizing through this documentary, that our minds are being filled with rubbish. That it's very hard to keep our attention on family and friends, even when we're together, because our heads are always down. Our minds are filled with so much rubbish. And when your mind is filled with so much rubbish, you know what happens? You begin to forget about the hope that is before you. Your mind is set fully on this world and not the world to come. And so we as believers need to fight to be sober-minded and get rid of that rubbish. But we also need to make sure not only that we don't fill our minds with rubbish, but that we don't just seek to empty our minds altogether as well. That's the other problem too, isn't it? That's the reverse problem. We think, okay, what what I need to do is get rid of all the rubbish and then meditate and empty my mind. So I'm kind of in this Zen state and therefore I have nothing there. No, that's not biblical either. What we are to do is remove the rubbish and fill our minds with the hope. The grace that is set before us. That is what we are to hope in. So brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to get your minds ready for action, to prepare your minds to be sober-minded so that you, each and every day, don't only hope in past grace, don't only hope in sustaining grace, but that you can have your sure hope fixed on future grace that is to come in the Lord Jesus. That's where we set our hope. And so we are to live in hope. But we are also to live in holiness. We as God's people are called to live in holiness. And that's actually the second command of this book. Be holy. Listen to the second command in First Peter that we hear. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. In all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so there we have it. The first two commands of this letter. Set your hope 
and be holy. And so if you are taking notes this morning and you want to know what are the two major themes of First Peter, the two major themes of First Peter are hope and holiness. They are the two first actions that Peter calls believers who are suffering in trials to hope and holiness. That's what we're called to do. Be holy. Except when we see this command, be holy, we make a few mistakes with this command. We make a few mistakes with this command. We forget the reason for the command, the reason behind the command and the motivation for the command. And that's what I want us to look at very briefly. We're going to talk about holiness later in this letter again. But I just want to touch on it this morning because it's here in the passage there is this I, there is this reason that we have for holiness and here is the reason for holiness it's it's summed up in this phrase in verse 15 he who called you is holy that is why we are called to be holy that is the reason we are to be holy because he who has called you is holy that's the reason he's holy And so he calls his people to be holy. The problem we have in the church is often this. Often people only seek holiness because they want to please other people. We want to look good and behave, be on our best behavior of holiness because we want to impress the church leaders or we want to impress other Christians that we look up to in the church. And that's why we want to be on our best behavior of holiness, because we want to please people. Listen, holiness is not about people. That is not your reason for holiness. Your reason for holiness is the holiness of God. God is ever holy. And so he calls his people to be holy. What does that mean? He calls his people to be set apart and different and distinct and unique from this world. We're not to look the same as this world. But the reason behind that is because our our father in heaven is holy. He who called you is holy. And that imagery that we hear there brings us back to the beautiful and glorious picture of Moses. Back in the day, back in the day, Moses, God's people, they were called to build this tent. This tent was this place of worship whereby they were to come and worship the Lord. And so they would come and worship the Lord by building this tent. The tent was called the tabernacle. And so at the end of Exodus, there's all these instructions about the tabernacle and how you're to build it. And then finally, finally, when it when it comes to the tabernacle and how you're to build it and, and all this, finally, what happens is the glory of the Lord comes down and descends upon the tabernacle, descends upon this tent of meeting. And what happens is Moses, the leader of God's people, he makes this attempt to enter into the tent. And you you know it's not going to go well for him. It's kind of like if you were to come up to the Niagara Falls and say, oh, I want a drink, and walk in under it just to take a drink, you know it's not going to go well because of the power that's behind it. And so here Moses is trying to enter into the tabernacle, and it doesn't go well. He can't get in. 
he doesn't have access into this tabernacle. He can't get into the tent. But then Leviticus chapter 1 verse 1 starts by saying these precious words of grace. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him. The only way Moses was able to enter into or get near to the holiness of God or the presence of God, the only way for him to get into the presence of God was if God called him. And he did. In his holiness, he calls him and provided a way through sacrifice for his people to enter into his presence. Oh, it is amazing. He who called us is holy. Therefore, we should be holy. That is how we have been able to enter into the presence of God. We have been called by God. And though he is holy and righteous, he has purified us from our sins through our great high priest and sacrifice, Jesus Christ, that we may enter into his presence. And therefore, he calls us to be holy. Because that's who he is. That's the reason. You know, as as parents, we experience some of this reality because, you know, he says at the beginning of verse 14, as obedient children. This is why we're called to be holy. We're, we're meant to be obedient children. That's the picture. And, and as parents, we, we understand this picture. You know, as a dad, you know, I, I'll give um, my children this instruction. You you go and you do something. And then one of them, they might come to me and they'll say, well, 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 why? Why should I do it? And so as a dad, I, I, I relent and I say, OK, well, I'll try and give a coherent explanation as to why they should do this command. So they come to me and I explain. They say, why should I do it? And I explain. Then they go away and they come back again and they say, well, why should I do it? And then I, I concede, OK, a second time I say, Okay, here's why I think you should do it. I try and reason with the child and send them off as to why they should do it. But then they come back again. And I'm not too pleased. And I'm sick of giving reasons as to why. And so what I say is something like this. Because I'm your dad. And I've told you to do it. And that is reason enough, isn't it? For parents instructing their children, it is reason enough. That the ultimate reason you should do what I'm asking you to do is because I am your father. That's the reason we're called to be holy, brothers and sisters. Because God is our father. And that is reason enough. He is who he says he is. And that is reason enough. That's the reason for the command. But there is also the motivation behind the command. Be holy as I am holy. You'll notice there in verse 16, he starts by saying this interesting phrase. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Since it is written. Now a question should come into your mind at that very point. Since it is written. A question should come into your mind. What's the question that should come into your mind? Where is it written? You shall be holy as I am holy. Because if we discover where it has been written, we will then begin to figure out the motivation behind this command, the motivation for us to do this command. 
Where was it written? Back in Leviticus. In fact, you have you have four commands in Leviticus similar to this. Chapter 11, chapter 19, twice in chapter 20. We have this command, be holy as I am holy. Which reveals to us the theme, the tone behind Leviticus. It is holiness. The holiness of God and his call for his people to be holy. But what we forget in relation to this command is we forget what we forget, this be holy command. We forget the introduction to the command. Remember what I was talking about last week about the Ten Commandments, that often we put the Ten Commandments up on a wall and you'll see it in Sunday school or whatever. And we teach our children the Ten Commandments. What we forget to teach them is the introduction to the commandments. And that's what happens here as well with be holy as I am holy. Uh, Christians read that and, and, and hear that as say, just behave. But we forget about the introduction to the command. And we see the introduction to the command in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45. It's one verse. Listen to what it says. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45. Here's the introduction. For I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall be holy, for I am holy. What's the motivation for the command? I am the Lord your God. Who has brought you up out of Egypt. Who has delivered you from slavery. Therefore, be holy as I am holy. That's what the Lord is saying to you this morning. I am the Lord your God. Who has set you free from the slavery of sin. And if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. We are free. We are free Men and women free in Christ, no longer changed to the sin in our lives. Sin no longer has rule or dominion over us. Therefore, we're called to be holy. When a slave is set free from a master, what do they do? They come and they praise and don't they? You've been set free from our master. We have been set free from the slavery of sin. And we come and we praise our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do that. We do that by living a holy life. That's the motivation. We heard it in that foundation. Oh, a great salvation that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That our sins are removed from us. That they're dealt with on the cross. That we have been forgiven. Therefore, be holy. And then the question is, just briefly, we have to look. How? Just like we did with hope. How, how do you set your hope? You set your hope by preparing your mind and being sober-minded. Well, well, so it is with be holy. How do we be holy? It tells us, do not conform. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's how we be holy. Do not conform, brothers and sisters, to this world. In other words, what he's saying is, do not go back to your old patterns. What I've noticed about us as human beings is we are creatures of habit. 
you know, it's funny for, for me and Luana, whenever we go out to a restaurant, here's how it looks. We go, we go out to the restaurant, we, we sit down whenever we get a chance. Um, we sit down, she gets a menu, I get a menu. When she gets a menu, she, she reads the whole thing carefully and she wants to weigh up all the decisions and the choices. That's the good way to read it. That's what you should do. But when I go into a restaurant straight away, especially when we've gone there, I know what I'm getting. I know what I'm getting, and here, here's the motivation behind that. I, I just don't want to be disappointed at the end of the night. I know what I want. I'm a creature of habit. Every single restaurant, I don't even need to open the menu. I know what I want, and she knows what I'm going to get too. Often we are creatures of habit. We go to the same old meals because they give us the same comfort. Here's the difficulty with that. When we're going through trials and hardships, you know what we do? We end up going back to the same old meals because we think they'll give us comfort and ease in our time. We go back to our same sins and our same passions and our same lusts because we think it will give us comfort at this time. Brothers and sisters, I think we're in a dangerous place right now when we cannot meet together physically and I have fellowship with one another right now on Fridays when we cannot meet physically Sundays when we cannot meet physically do you know what you're in danger of you're in danger of going back to your old way of life you're in danger of conforming to the patterns of this world and what God wants to say to you is do not conform Don't conform to the way of this world. You have reason for not conforming. You have the motivation for not conforming. You have the foundation for not conforming. Therefore, don't do it. Don't go back to your old way of speaking. Don't go back to your old ways of thinking. Don't go back to your old ways of behaving. Put them all to death. Why? Because your father's calling you to do it. He is holy. Let us live a life, brothers and sisters, a life that is based on hope and holiness, and a life that knows we have received past grace. We are receiving sustaining grace, and we set our hope in future grace that is to come. I want us to take this time uh, while we're at home to sing a song of praise to the Lord. Cornerstone. My hope is to be in him. So singing it, sing it out loud with your family, even if you're on your own right now, I encourage you, sing this out loud to the Lord. And we'll spend some time in reflection So do uh, write up verses or comments or questions or thoughts or reflections during this time. And we'll deal with that after we sing Cornerstone together.